Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. The Medici family were renowned arts patrons whose considerable largesse put Florence at the centre of the Italian Renaissance. Artists who benefited from their patronage included Botticelli, Michelangelo, Raphael, Leonardo da Vinci and Artemisia Gentileschi, along with writers and scientists such as Machiavelli and Galileo. They were also the greatest bankers of their age, using their wealth and influence to reshape Florentine politics, becoming popes and grand dukes of Tuscany despite their modest origins. Kathleen Olive joins us today to discuss the rise and fall of the Medici dynasty, a 300-year history coloured by strategic power play, bitter rivalries and bloody intrigues. Kathleen is a literary and cultural historian with a PhD in Florentine Renaissance Studies from the University of Sydney. She teaches Italian language, literature and history and leads cultural tours to Italy, some of which explore the extraordinary legacy of the Medicis. Welcome back, Kathleen. Thanks very much, uh, Great to have you here again to talk about another fascinating story from the Italian Renaissance. Thanks, Jo. Um, can we start with where the Medicis came from? Yeah, absolutely. So they came from an area to the north of the city of, Tusc- of uh, Florence in Tuscany, and this was an area called the Mugello. It's kind of halfway from Florence to Bologna in the mountains and the Apennines there. And it was a very rural kind of place. They were just regular peasant stock, but in the 14th century, like so many others in uh, in central Italy, in Tuscany, in the Middle Ages, they decided to try their luck in the big smoke and they moved to Florence. So how did they make their rise? I mean, they rose quite quickly, did they? Yeah, they did, relatively speaking, but they weren't alone in that. This was a period in which uh, the economy of central Italy was just booming. So Italians had got into the textile trade and they got into it in a way that allowed them to make a lot of money really quickly. So they had started to not just use their own local wool, which wasn't very good quality. They'd started uh, taking trading missions to England, to places like the Cotswolds, and picking up English wool, taking it all the way back to Italy, working it, finishing it, and then exporting the finished cloth, which they were, of course, able to put a premium on. So the Medici come into Florence in the 14th century when that's all really booming and they get caught up in the finance side of it. So in financing the missions, the trading missions of these merchants who are going out, working out dodgy ways to get around church law on lending money uh, and making a lot of money really, really quickly. So for them, it was, to begin with, it was initially just about changing currency So for merchants coming through the city on their way to, say, Rome, they would help you navigate all of the different different currency changes that you had to make for every little individual Italian city-state. But then from that, they become financiers. So they start bankrolling the papacy, for example, or the King of England, and that allows them to make a lot more money quickly. So the Medici Bank, that, that was a really important step then. Yes, absolutely. And again, they weren't alone in that. So in the 14th century, there were quite a few of these family banks. I mean, they start quite literally from a bench, which is all the word banco means in Italian. It just means a bench. And these bankers would sit behind a bench in the square, change the money for you. But their new financial technologies allowed them to go steps further. So you could, for example, deposit money with the Medici in Florence and then draw 
in Spain on a Medici branch bank in Spain draw that uh, funds out thanks to using pieces of paper, what we would call checks, uh, for example. So these new financial technologies allow them to really build their bank and then they get some very big clients. So the papacy, for example, in the early 15th century is a good client to have, but so too are French kings or English kings because they'll always be fighting one another. So they're always going to need a supply of money to pay their troops. They're riskier clients because they can default on their loans. And that happened in in the 14th century that the English king defaulted on his loans and bankrupted three Italian banks, three Florentine banks. But the Medici escaped that. That's not their fate. And they go on instead just to make a lot of money. So at one point, I believe they became the wealthiest family in Europe. Yes, absolutely. Yes. The interesting thing is, though, that at that point in time, in about the first half of the 15th century, if things had gone slightly differently, one of their neighbours would have been the most wealthy person, uh, but they are able to politically exile their biggest competition and corner corner the market in that sense. But in fact, things could have gone quite differently. So there's a lot of chance and fate uh, in terms of what happens with their development. So how did they exile the um, the competition? <laughs> well, it was pretty. It's a pretty common thing to do. I mean, Florence from the 13th century has a a form of government that we would call democracy. I mean, women couldn't vote and you had to earn a certain amount of money to vote and you had to be over the age of 25. So it's not a democracy as we understand it, but it is representative government. And that system had a lot of checks and balances to make sure that it couldn't be uh, monopolised by a particular family. So it shouldn't have been possible for them to control government, but they did manage to control government. And so when they had the balance of power in this communal representative government, they would use that opportunity to exile whoever they thought was a strong political threat. And that's what they do Uh, in the 1430s. In 1434, they exile their greatest competition, which is the Strozzi family. And it, it breaks that family for a good three or four generations. So how did their contemporaries feel about them then? Oh, it's a very it's a very mixed bag. So they employed in the 15th century the Medici across their various enterprises because they start investing the funds they're making in their banks into other activities. They, for example, own a number of wool processing firms in the centre of Florence. They get involved in trade of a particular mineral called alum, which was the best fixative for dyes in medieval fabrics. Certainly easier to fix dyes with alum than it is to fix them with human urine, so they corner the market on that one. And it means that by the middle of the 15th century, they're employing more than half of the city. So if your income is dependent on one particular dynasty, you're probably not going to put your head too high up above the parapet in terms of saying that you think they're essentially controlling your city like a tyrant would. So there is some resistance. There's uh, some private diaries that have survived where people say very, very delicately and reluctantly that they don't think under the Medici their city of Florence is really a republic anymore. But for the most part, they are very, very effective at suppressing any opposition to them. And they're very canny in how they do that. But there was an assassination attempt. There was. 1478. Easter Sunday, everyone in the Cathedral of Florence for Easter Mass, the most holy moment of the Mass as the priest elevates the host and everyone in the congregation bows their head. 
members of a particular rival family of the Medici, the Patsy family, who had been a great 14th century banking dynasty, but were ruined, in fact, by the defaulting of the loan uh, to the King of England. They'd been trying, together with the papacy, uh, to take power away from the Medici. They, in fact, wanted to control part of that mineral trade, the alum trade. Uh, and so they conspire together with a, an archbishop, in fact, to assassinate, their attempt is to assassinate Lorenzo the Magnificent, who's the most prominent member of the family at that point in time. There's a glancing wound on Lorenzo the Magnificent. He takes himself off to the sacristy of Florence Cathedral and barricades himself into the sacristy with some friends who are defending him. But his brother, Giuliano, is not so lucky. So he is in, he is in fact hacked to pieces in the church, uh, in the Cathedral of Florence uh, on Easter Sunday during Mass. Uh, as part of this Patsy conspiracy. And Joe, your face is speaking a thousand words right now about the violence of that. And that was the response of the citizens of Florence as well. So they rose up uh, in a kind of spontaneous support for the Medici, who they were obligated to because of loans, marriage matches, all of the kind of patronage that the family had been so successful at doing. And people, we're told from historical accounts, they pick up any weapons that they have to hand. There's one guy who rushes into the fray with a garden rake, for example, uh, and they ruthlessly hunt down all of the conspirators in the Patsy uh, family and, uh, and their allies, and they are quite literally defenestrated. So the, the chief conspirators of the Patsy uh, conspiracy are thrown out of the windows of Florence Town Hall and, and hanged until they're dead. And then their bodies are cut down and dragged around the town by small children uh, who do things like make the, the dead men knock on the door to their own houses and ask uh, their family members to open up. It's an extremely violent episode in Florence's history. And it's a bit of a counterpoint to all the beautiful art and architecture to remember what kinds of turbulent undercurrents uh, are underpinning some of those developments that we think of more readily. There's a lot of political striving and, and in fact, open violence. What happened to the Archbishop? He's hanged as well. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, he's actually defenestrated too. It, people might remember at the beginning of the movie Hannibal, uh, the sequel to Silence of the Lambs, that in fact we start with Anthony Hopkins in Florence with a, a police inspector who's a descendant of the Patsy family who says to the inspector, do you remember what happened to the members of your family in 1478? And anyone with some kind of historical knowledge of Florence knows from that moment on nothing good is going to happen to that police inspector. And in fact, if memory serves, he's defenestrated as well. So yes, uh, all of the conspirators are hunted down. Um, obviously not the, the ones right in the heart of the papacy, but even churchmen who are responsible. When did they become interested in um, supporting the arts and humanities? Very early on. So um, the the first generation that gets the bank really going doesn't do too much in terms of art patronage. They're consolidating their position. They've got other things to think about. But then the next generation, so particularly with a man called Giovanni Di Bici, uh, he starts uh, really investing in cultural patronage. He helps bankroll the construction of Florence Cathedral with its massive dome, for example. He helps pick the people who will decorate the baptistry. And he also invests a lot in his neighbourhood church, which is the Church of San Lorenzo. And then his son, whose name is Cosimo de' Medici, the first of many Medici called 
Cosimo, uh, he starts really, really investing in artists. So he has a private pension that he establishes for the sculptor Donatello, for example. Uh, he uh, is very interested in the painter Frangelico, who a lot of people know and love. Uh, and he's very much a cultural patron. And from that point on, he really sets a pattern. From that point on, the family never really stops being interested in uh, supporting the arts, but also cultural and scientific endeavour as well. I mean, why was that? I mean, was there money in it or was it that they actually genuinely loved the art and wanted to see it thrive? It's a great question. It's a little bit of column A and a little bit of column B. There, There's not mon- directly money in it, but there's soft power in it. And the Medici, in the first few generations of the family in the 14th and 15th century, they're really interested in maximising their potential of soft power. They don't want to show themselves in a way that would make them look like tyrants. So cultural patronage is a great, a great way to do that. People see something beautiful in the city. They see a lovely statue of David by Donatello and they they think that's lovely. That's for all of us. It's in a public place. And they don't perhaps think so much about why it might be that the Medici are putting that statue in that place uh, in public for them to think about. So it's a, a way of accessing cultural power. And it's also drawing on a really ancient tradition in Italy, which is that the ruling classes from the time of ancient Rome really acted as cultural patrons. That was part of the quid pro quo, that they protected the little people and the little people gave them political support. And that's exactly how the Medici manage to get to the political position that they do, those kind of quid pro quo relationships. I mean, they were famously great arts patrons. So just tell us about some of the artists that they supported. In the 15th century in Florence, it's pretty hard to think of a single artist whose career um, emerged out of central Italy without some connection to the Medici. So in that case, um, you almost can't think of someone who was not directly sponsored by them, but someone who comes immediately to mind would be Michelangelo, who has a particularly strong connection with the family. Uh, His work is seen uh, when he's very, very young, maybe about eight or nine. His work is seen by Lorenzo the Magnificent, uh, so uh, one of the, as his name suggests, one of the most culturally important figures of 15th century Florence. And he, in fact, invites the young Michelangelo to live with the Medici in their family palace. So he grows up, Michelangelo tells us in his autobiography, sitting at the dinner table, chatting with, you know, the most important man in the city, with philosophers who are translating Plato from Greek into into Latin, for example. Uh, and for Michelangelo, this just has an extraordinary impact on his career. He grows up alongside two Medici sons who will go on to become the first two popes uh, that the Medici have. He'll go down to Rome and work for them. It's just revolutionary for his career, but he ends up uh, in a much more ambiguous kind of relationship to the Medici at the end of his career. How did they then become Grand Dukes? I mean, was that just developing the influence that they had? Yeah, it's a kind of a very slow incremental process. So in the 15th century, they're technically just citizens like everyone else. They've stacked the electoral branches. They've got a lot of people who owe them small amounts of money. They've helped people marry their daughters well. So they've got all of this cultural patronage that they've been doing. But technically, they're just citizens like the rest of us, first among equals. 
And then what happens when they get their first Medici popes is that the geopolitics of Europe are really, really shifting and the major um, political players at the end of the 15th century moving into the 16th are the French and the Spanish and the papacy. So they angle some sons into the papacy, which is always a good idea, and they use then their diplomatic connections to Spain. And at this point, it's all very confusing, but at this point, the king of Spain is also the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. And he is able, like the Pope, to make uh, dukes, grand dukes, and even kings. And so while the Medici would have liked to have become kings of Tuscany, to begin with, he elevates them to a duchy, a duchy of Tuscany, and then about half a generation later to a grand duchy. So it's a bit of a a diplomatic wheeling and dealing that they're able to do. There's money involved as well. The Holy Roman Emperor Charles V, he always needs more money to fight fight more battles. He's doing a lot of expansion in terms of territory. So it's partly diplomacy, partly money, they don't get the crown that they would have liked. They don't become um, a monarchy, but they they do end up as grand dukes, hereditary grand dukes, thanks to these arrangements. And as you said, they did marry into royal families. Absolutely, yes. Um, they placed their daughters very, very uh, carefully. So we have Marie de Medici in France, for example, who is directly descended from someone like Lorenzo the, Mag- the Magnificent. We've got Catherine. Yes, they place uh, daughters just as carefully as they place their sons. And the family trees of the Royal House of Spain and of France are directly, and Poland even, are directly descended from the Medici in Florence. So when did the um, dynasty, how did it end? They're not very good at producing healthy heirs, it should be said, a bit like the Habsburgs with the uh, the Haps- problem of the Habsburg jaw and a little too much inbreeding. It's not the case of too much inbreeding when it comes to the Medici, but they do have certain hereditary problems that are exacerbated over time. Um, you know, one of those that runs through the whole family, for example, is gout. Generation after generation of Medici men uh, suffer with gout. So they're unable to produce male heirs by the time we get to the middle of the 18th century, about the 1730s. There are no strong male heirs. Uh, And so instead, uh, the great superpowers of Europe have a bit of a discussion. They say, what are we going to do about the Grand Duchy of Tuscany? They're kind of strategically important. They're really culturally important. They've got this heritage in the city of Florence. What What will we do? And so they essentially hand the territory over to the Habsburg Lorraines. Uh, and the the final Medici, which is uh, wonderful, uh, Anna Maria Luisa is her name. She says, okay, I can't really do very much here. I don't have an army. I can't um, hold on to the, the Grand Duchy of Tuscany by myself as the last of the Medici. But what I can do before the Habsburg Lorraines arrive is I can ascertain that everything that is uh, a possession of the Medici family in Tuscany at this point of time will be handed over to the state, the state of Tuscany, and can never be allowed to leave the territory of Tuscany. This is the so-called family pact. So the Habsburg Lorraines come into Tuscany, but they can't just take out of Tuscany all of the great treasures of art uh, that were in were in the territory. So they don't get taken off to, to Vienna, for example. They don't get removed from the territory like so many other places that are occupied by the, by the Habsburgs um, uh, in particular. So this family pact is in fact the reason why most of us go to Tuscany to see all of those movable art treasures that you have in museums like the Uffizi. The only reason they're still there is because Anna Maria Luisa, the last of the Medici, 
signed them over to the state under the so-called Family Pact. I mean, they technically aren't even allowed to be sent on loans and it's always a bit controversial when they are. Yeah. Well, that that's, you know, quite visionary in a way, isn't it? Otherwise mm. you can see the, the artwork's being sold all over the place. Yes, I think she she was quite clear-eyed about what happened to other little principalities and duchies and grand duchies when they get swallowed up in these bigger superpowers. All of the things of renown and note get loaded up on carts and taken over to the Alps to places like Vienna and you get wonderful collections of art there as a result. But I think she saw that it would have meant absolute devastation for Tuscany to lose all of those treasures and so they kept them uh, as a result of her. So every year on her birthday, the Florentine government uh, goes to her tomb and lays a wreath uh, to thank her for having signed it all over to the state. So they're all still state museums uh, in, in Tuscany today as a result. So what is the legacy then of the Medicis? Mm, it's a conflicted one. I mean, I think most people, when they think of them, they think immediately of art uh, and of culture, and that was certainly the case in the 15th and the 16th centuries in particular. In the 17th and 18th centuries, they're actually quite culturally repressive. They have a conflicted relationship, for example, with Galileo and with some of his scientific discoveries. They become uh, increasingly religiously conservative. So in fact, the culture and population of Tuscany declines under the last 200 years of Medici rule. But I think because of the family pact, most of us think of the the legacy of the Medici as this extraordinary patrimony uh, of art and architecture in the in the city of Florence. But recently there's been a, a reinvestigation of their legacy that's also uh, thought about the ways in which they came to power. And so there's been a recent tendency to see them as a, a kind of a medieval mafia uh, has been a, a way of describing how they rose to power and kept and kept power. So yes, I'd say probably now we'd think of it as a conflicted legacy. And yet you can't go to Florence without being surrounded by by things. Medici balls, yes, you know, their family, yeah. their family crest of all of the little balls, possibly of the coins of money that they, they dealt in. It's absolutely everywhere. And once you see it, you can't unsee it. So they've left the uh, extraordinary riches for all of us to enjoy. But behind that, in order to get to that position, there could be quite ruthless behaviour. What's your opinion of the SBS series about the Medici? I mean, I've tried to watch it the whole way through. I, I think I got through one full episode. It's a co-production um, with a, a very reputable Italian um, uh, production agency. So the the qualities of the show visually, are, it's very attractive to watch. And they really amp up the interesting narrative of the family. Historically, it's not particularly accurate, I would say. So they take quite a lot of uh, liberty with uh, the personalities that they give to certain characters. They give women a much higher profile in the story than most of the Medici women actually had. So it's more interesting to watch than the historical reality in that sense. Uh, but it's uh, it's it's engaging and it's splashy, but I have to be honest and say I can't quite get through a full episode, Joe. Thanks, Kathleen. As usual, really terrific to talk to you again. Thanks, Thanks for your time. Thanks, it's a pleasure. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. 
For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to join them online for their lectures, short courses and live on-site tours, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Lipson. Thank you for your company.